Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the senior minister here at Christ Church. Each week, our podcast will begin with Steve giving a short talk on whatever subject we might be covering that week, followed by a discussion between the two of us and guests of the podcast. I am really pleased to be able to welcome the Reverend Becca Stevens to Chasing Faith podcast. I've known Becca, I think it goes back to 2006, and we met and Becca, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we met when we were, uh, you know, <laughs> marketing a, was it your first book or not? Yeah, we were both marketing a first book. Yeah. Of course, currently it's my only book, but at the time it was a first book. And uh, we had a stall next to each other. We each had a stall next to each other and we, uh, you know, we had instant connection and we've enjoyed one another ever since. And uh, Becca has been to Christ Church a number of times and she can tell us about that as well. But uh, a longtime friendship, both personally and professionally, in the sense of uh, coming to Christ Church and being uh, part of our outreach experience as well. We've learned a lot from Becca over the years. Becca, for our listeners' sake and for Brandon's sake, who's also with us in conversation, I think the place to begin is just simply to say, who the hell are you, Becca Stevens? How, what, yeah, what what's, your, yeah, what's your story? What's your story? Hey, I just want to say um, that Christchurch was one of the first mm-hmm. places that invited us to come. And when I say us, it was me to preach, but also the whole community of Thistle Farms to join in and be a part of your ministry. And you welcomed us so beautifully. And seriously, you know, when you're from Tennessee and you get invited to preach in New York, the first couple of times it just feels like, you know, am I going to Carnegie Hall? Something big is happening. It was awesome. And so I'm so grateful for that. And that was years ago. And your hospitality and... Um, the way you preach love hasn't changed at all. So you may be chasing faith, but you're grounded in your love and in your hospitality. So my story is that I have been the founder and president of Thistle Farms as well as an Episcopal priest for, you know, a very, very long time. In three, 30 years? 20-something years for Thistle Farms and 30 years as an ordained Episcopal minister. But I came to the work, um, as you can hear from my voice from Tennessee. Um, oh, is that what it is? Yes. Yeah, okay. It, yeah. This, this is black dirt talking right here. Actually, more um, <laughs> anyway, sandy soil sometimes. But um, you know, we have we started in Nashville, and then we grew to a national organization helping women who are survivors of trafficking, prostitution, addiction began with housing and moved into this beautiful justice enterprise where we make body products. And now I spend 
up until COVID, I spent a lot of time, you know, really starting new organizations in different parts of the world. So it's grown to be a really global movement that's all about women's freedom. Is it based on the same, you're saying, you're, uh, these new organizations are the same population, same mm-hmm. methods? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a franchise. It's a bit, it's not like a franchise, but it's, think of it more as an order. In the, yeah, um, okay, all right. Independent run agencies that are part of a, an aligned network with core values that, you know, try to come together with those values and have a larger voice. So in in the U.S., we have about 430 beds now. So I just want to say that the um, the whole guiding principle for us when we first began was really the Benedictine model about hospitality and welcoming women in and saying, um, you know, just come be a part of this community and we'll figure out what it is you need. And so that model of hospitality really grounds us. So it looks different. Maybe it looks different in Mexico or Rwanda or in the middle of um, Ecuador or upstate New York. Like it looks different in different places, but we're all connected by the core values. Maybe, maybe Becca, it would be helpful to just from a 30,000 foot perspective, what is Thistle Farms? What do you do? Yeah. And, you know, we can't have 30,000 feet perspectives anymore because of COVID. (laughs) I understand. This has been the most humbling year of my life, I will tell you that. And I barely have that perspective anymore. And so it's fun to be invited to look from that angle again. I mean, we've gone from traveling around the world, opening organizations, to putting food outside people's doors to help them keep going on their furlough. And that's good for all of us in our ministry. So my 30,000 foot perspective is Thistle Farm since 1997 has been welcoming women who are survivors of trafficking, prostitution, addiction into our homes. They're two-year residential homes that are safe, that provide everything they need. They're free. There's no authority that lives in the house. And that model has expanded over the years to include four justice enterprises headquartered here in Nashville, Tennessee, but also now has welcomed more than 50 50 communities around the country that provide 430 long-term beds for women. And we also have launched our global marketplace and shared trade movement with more than 1,700 women that are a part of um, the, the, the buying and selling of products made by artisan survivors that really value the producer in a different way. That's great. That's helpful. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <clears throat> but in reality, I, I mostly just run around Thistle Farms and try to find a quiet place to talk. <laughs> and you are currently president. I am. I am. We hired a CEO five years ago that has done a beautiful job leading us with building projects with, you know, um, a strict analysis on margins with marketing plans, all of those things. And I get to stay rooted in the mission and in the growth of the overall community of Thistle Farms. Right. And you've also authored a number of books. And I, as I recall, one of the things I instantly liked about you was that first book that you produced. And every single one subsequently has reflected the same 
a deeply warm, compassionate regard for the women you help, as well as an eye towards the reader who you want to reach and touch uh, both emotionally as well as spiritually. And uh, I would commend those books to uh, our listeners. In fact, maybe we can uh, advertise that in some fashion uh, going forward. Um, but maybe I, I think it would, our listeners would like to hear, well, how did you get involved with this? How did this, all of this happen? What, what, uh, where'd you come from? <laughs> what, what, why did you start this program? You know, first of all, I will say, I think I was born for the place where justice and arts and craft come together. I'm very good in that sweet <laughs> space. I think I have I've always loved the entrepreneurial life. I've always loved justice and I've always loved making things. All of that has been a part of my life. When I was little, my dad was a pastor and he was killed by a drunk driver when I was five years old. And the pastor of the church where he, I'm sorry, one of the, say that again. I'm starting that over. When I was little, my father was killed by a drunk driver when I was five years old. And he was the pastor of a local church and one of the elders of the church that took over after he died, began to sexually abuse me about the age of six. And it went on for years and it was horrible. And it happens to a lot of kids where there's one trauma and then people kind of step in and take advantage. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I had this, you know, this childhood, if you can call it that, that was pretty traumatized and pretty scary, but I also had this really creative and beautiful mom. She had five kids. She was single at 35, um, you know, raised us and she was working in a daycare center and ended up running the whole community center. She started doing ministry. So I really had all of the elements of knowing really how destructive community can be and how beautiful and productive it can be. I had both of those things. And, um, you know, I ended up getting ordained thinking always, I think, that what I really wanted to do was create really safe sanctuary for women and have really creative community that could be healing. That's what How'd I did. How'd you wind, what was your track into the priesthood? So I was a math major in college. Yeah. I was really. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they weren't even ordaining women when I was. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it was, you know, I moved to Washington, D.C. to work for a place called Bread for the World that was doing organizing around hunger legislation. And I kept thinking that was the most basic justice issue. I mean, I really was raised to be for the underdog. We were the underdogs in many ways. And I wanted to do that. And then it was when I got to Bread for the World, it was like, this is really for me more about wanting to nurture a community, not pass one piece of legislation. I want to be with people um, for a long time working on justice issues. And I knew I wanted to start someplace um, while I didn't have all the words for it or we didn't even have the language around trafficking back then. I really did feel like when I started meeting women on the streets and in the jails, that I was meeting sisters and I didn't know at the time what was connecting us was rooted in this childhood sexual trauma. That was the big connection. And so 
it was just, it came, I can't even say it except it came really naturally. And I could raise money pretty well and I could tell the story. So I start, you know, I, mean, I began with one house, five women, and just said, come live here and be here. But then it was realizing, you know what, it's not enough just to open up a sanctuary. You have to be worried about people's economic well-being. They have to be able to have fun. They have to be able to be creative. All of that stuff is true for women survivors like everybody in the world. Mm. And so that's when we started making bath and body care products. I mean, seriously, I have never worked with a woman coming off the streets in now 23 years that hasn't been raped. So we're talking about thousands of women. And I think we're still, by the way, just as an aside, I think we're still at the very beginning of understanding that, that kind of statistic that you're talking about. I know. I know. And Mm. and it's so humbling, but that's why I wanted to make products for the body. How did you stumble it? What was, what was the brainstorm that came up with that? You know, making products. It was, I mean, so it just was all very, very organic. That's the best I can say is that I loved, I knew that baths were some of my most healing space for me and my body. And I'm a pastor, so I love oils. You know, we've been anointing with oils. (laughs) You know, Moses goes up the mountain and he gets oil to peace. It's it's part of our healing for all of us. And so it was it was easy. It was like, oh my gosh, I can make the products I'm using in my bathtub. And that's where I can connect back to my body and not be afraid of it and you know, all the stuff that everybody else does to your body. None of that has to happen when you are just in a peaceful space, naked and soaking with the best oils. In the whole world. <laughs> By the way, parenthetically, I just got the latest uh, message from Thistle Farms advertising their products, probably just in time for the holiday season. And I would uh, encourage our listeners to check out their website, the Thistle Farms website, where you can do all of your Christmas shopping. <laughs> I love little commercial brands. I know. I can't help. Bath and body products. But um, no, they are good products for, I mean, for every stage of your life. I feel like, you know, oils can carry you from birth to death. Yes. And I always knew that, but it was like, what I didn't realize was that they had such a long shelf life, that they have good margins, that it would connect us to women all over the world. All of that was going to unfold as the years went on. Hmm. But it made, it was an easy product to make. And it's, it's been the biggest gift of my life. I mean, you think about it, um, Stephen, just theologically, the idea, instead of pastors going out to the street and putting a little oil and praying for women. The women from the streets are creating the healing oils for all the pastors to be able to use. Yep. I love it. I love it. I mean, the whole way your ministry evolved is a real model for how the church will likely be evolving, uh, in the years ahead. And, um, that's one of the things I so appreciate about you were just head of the game in a way. Um, you were serving as a priest of a congregation when Thistle Farms was formed, I believe. Is that still, is your role in that uh, chaplaincy still working? 
It is. Um, yeah. So it's not. Tell us about that. Not maybe a parish. It's really. It is a chapel on the Vanderbilt campus, which is great because a chapel, a, a chaplaincy, is pretty low on the ranking if you're going to rank orders of ordination. I mean, it ranks right. way below rectors and deans and yeah. bishops and all of that. Yeah. So the gift of that is nobody really cares what you do. <laughs> <laughs> understand. I understand. I'm with you. Like, she's a chaplain. I don't know. What do chaplains do? So it's a great place to start out a community like Thistle Farms and really to start a justice enterprise. Because if you think of a place like Vanderbilt, we had no cost. We could do it right there in the, we have this A-frame right on the fraternity sorority row. We started making products right there at the chaplain. I mean, because it was, you know, a place where students could come, people could come, this whole beautiful space. And also you get people from the divinity school, from the business school, from um, human organization development school, from the nursing school. People want to join in and help. And when you have a common project, we could invite people from all over. So for me, the chaplaincy and the work of Justice and Thistle Farms went along really, really well. In fact, you know, we ended up having to move out of that space because it, there were so many people coming around, we couldn't fit in the space anymore. Mm. It was because I think the chaplaincy became more relevant. It became more accessible to people like, oh, well, here's what they do. They actually, you know, work with a lot of different people um, creating community. Right. Right. Then, you know, and the whole idea is that it was never set up to help a subculture of women who were just survivors. It was really about helping all of us become community again. You know, you rape yes. a woman, you kill a village. You heal a woman, you heal a village. And the same thing is true in everything that we do when we come together and do the work together, all of us feel that healing. It's not just that I do something for you. It's we do something together. Right. So are you, you're still the chaplain. Yeah. Only, you know, only because I think they would feel sick firing me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> There's four other Episcopal priests who really do the heavy lifting. I'll get that. I meant to um, silence your cell phones before we began. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's not, that's actually my the the internal church phone. I haven't. I don't know quite how to. I don't know how the how it works. So. <laughs> Why have you not written any more books? Well, um, well, you know, I kind of got sidetracked with this PhD I told you about on th on forgiveness. Oh it's beautiful, by the way. The piece that you sent was beautiful. Well, thanks. I uh, I, I intend to still write, uh, but I got sidetracked by that, and that was very time consuming and took a lot of energy. And so, but I'll come back to it. I I have it in me, and I'm in the process. In fact, I might pick your brain a little bit on an idea or two I have. I'm just finishing a manuscript right now. I'm just in the editing process and it's called Practically Divine. Yeah. And that's been the best gift really besides getting to spend so much time at home with mm. my family that I never experienced in decades. That's been the greatest gift is getting what, to what's the What's the what's the thrust of this one? It's about being practically divine. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> I mean, is it is it Thistle Farms based or is it a, a little a step away? It's a step away. It's really right. about trying to like blur all the different lines. Yeah. And the idea again is practically divine, like almost divine or usefully divine. There's a lot of ways to interpret right. it's practically divine. In some ways for me, it means good enough and yeah. um, amazingly beautiful at the same time. Yeah. So things that maybe we discarded can be practically divine or all these efforts and these revolutionary crafts I'm doing are practically divine. And it blurs the line between the poetic and the practical for me. Yeah. Yep. just says it can be inspired and useful at the same time. Yep. You, you so articulate um, what I believe to be true about essential theology. So thank you for that. <laughs> and like, what, like I said, I, I really feel that how you're articulating it is going to be really instructive to the church as we evolve over the next several decades. You know, it's going to be different post-COVID, don't you think? I mean, church is going to be different. I can already feel it. Uh, I don't know exactly what's on the other side, but I but I feel it. And you're already kind of there in a way. Um, you have the luxury, in a way, of not having the responsibility of a grand uh, Byzantine Romanesque building. By the way, we're under, well, I guess you know this, we we're under renovation. It's the first renovation in 90 years. And it'll hopefully be online again by Ash Wednesday, although who knows if we'll be able to be using it at that point. My point is, though, um, that you are sort of already modeling how the church may uh, constitute its ministry in the days ahead. You still gather. In a, as chaplain, you're still celebrating the Eucharist weekly, at least weekly, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. um, and now you're, this practical divinity is right in line with all of it. I'm so appreciative of how your life has evolved and how it has blended the, the sacred and the profane in a spectacular fashion. That is the kindest thing ever. Thank you. And I'm, I mean, coming from you, that means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And really, I'm, I keep thinking of just the T-shirt. Whenever I write a book, I try to think if the T-shirt's going to look good. Yeah. Don't you think a practically divine T-shirt would be amazing? Yeah, I'm, I'm I do. I'm there for it. Yeah. You, you're in it? You're going to buy it? I'm there. I'm there for it. See, that's practically divine is just thinking about the merch opportunities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I do have a question about what, what I was thinking about when I was specifically writing this book is, you know, um, it started on a day I was in the cafe at Thistle Farms about a year ago. So this is pre COVID. And I was there doing a podcast, actually. And my assistant came up and said, there's a guy at the cash register wanting to talk to you. And I was like, oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. She said, well, she, he said, she, he said, he's your mother's godson. And I was like, well, I don't know that my mom had, and I don't know any of my mom's godchildren. My mom's been dead for 30 years. She died young too. But I was thinking if, if it came from that church where I was abused for all those years, this is not going to be a good story. And I didn't want to go. And she said, he really wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, hang on. So I told the people that I was doing the podcast with, 
just hang on a second. And I will go up to the register and I look at him and I take a step back and he looks like the spitting image of the guy from the church that abused me. Except Ooh. he's whatever, 40 years younger. Like it was like I took a time, a step back in time, 40 years. And he introduced himself and he was the grandson of the man who abused me. Wow. And he was telling me that he had just come out of treatment and his family had said he should come and see what he could do to volunteer at Thistle Farms and told him about me and that I could probably help him. Did he know about his so father? I have no idea, right? I have no okay. idea. He's standing okay. in the cash register and I'm freaking <laughs> out. He's the exact age. I'm looking at this man who is the exact age wow. as the man who abused me. But I've aged now 40 years. So I'm looking in, like I can imagine my five-year-old self looking at this person, but now I'm all these years later looking. It, it was crazy the, mo the, the, wow. the amount of thoughts going through my head and just like telling him to get the hell out of there. Yeah. And thinking he has no idea what he's, what he's bringing up in me. And so all that stuff's going on in my head. And I just say to him, you know, I have this podcast. I can't talk about this right now, but um, maybe you could come back and we can have a conversation. All that. So that happens. And he comes, he's getting ready to come back. But what happens in between is that there's a Sunday morning and I preach about him showing up at the cafe and thinking he has no idea that his grandfather abused me and how I had this experience of really this practical divine. And I kind of understood the moment where Mary wanted to sing and there was nothing but love and gratitude. I was, you know, I wasn't undone by this man and I could help him. And I built this whole place so that people who have been broken and I imagine his life had been so messed up by this family. And it was like, I'm so glad he was there and I had nothing but joy. What, and then what I didn't realize was he was sitting in there and learned for the first time as I was preaching as his grandfather sexually abused me for three years. So he was livid. He was humiliated. He was all these things and came up after this church service and just started yelling at me. I mean, just furious and telling me I had no right telling that story, that blah, blah, blah. It never happened. All this stuff. And it was then that I got to really be his pastor and help him and say, your family does know it. It, ha it came out years and years ago. Um, it's why part of your own trauma that you've inherited. It's why you're in part of the reason you're in treatment. And I totally get to tell the story anytime I want. I've made my whole life about <laughs> keeping that secret. So your little anger tantrum isn't doing anything. And again, I could be in this space where I knew myself and it was because I'd done all this work. Well, of course. Anyway, it was amazing. And I was like, I really want to write a whole journey about what from five-year-old to this, really about all those places you learn how to be in a moment that you can find the divine in and you can act in a practical way so it doesn't send you into a freaking tailspin. Yeah. Mm. Was he able to receive what you told him? No. Not begin. I mean, I have no idea. Honestly, oh. no, because okay. he came back another mm -hmm. time and we talked again. And I think he was getting into a good place and COVID hit. So I have no uh, idea. I gotcha. But mm -hmm. I imagine he was, I mean, 
there was a lot going on with him anyway. Yeah. A lot yeah. going on with him. Yeah. And we have, like I said, four other pastors. And so I set up a meeting with my one of my great colleagues for he and that person to be really in a pastoral relationship. It wasn't going to be appropriate or helpful right. for me to do that. When you say you have four pastors, do you mean Thistle Farms? No, the where I am at the chapel at Vanderbilt. There's oh, there's chapel. I see. Okay. So it was easy to say, you need to go. Some This person is going to be a great fit for you. Knows a mm. lot about recovery. Knows a lot about yeah. trauma. That is an incredible story. And, you know, so uh, no such thing as a coincidence. It's a profound sacred serendipity, a sacred serendipity. Well, the crazy thing for me, too, was how much I mean, I was so mad at myself for preaching about it with him there. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have done that if I, I didn't even know he knew I was at this place. I didn't I mean, I don't know this person. And right. He had never been there before, so I didn't expect it because it's even hard to kind of find the chapel at Vanderbilt. Nobody just shows up that much. And um, so I had all this, I was so mad at myself. And then I was going down that spiral that we do to ourselves as pastors, too. And then it was also so mad about, I was so mad about so much stuff still. And I thought, can you believe I still have to do this work? And it's like, yeah, you still have to do this work. Yeah, we all get to keep doing this work. We get to love ourselves and then be mad at ourselves. Yeah, do the meditation, do the walk, and then be mad again. <laughs> yeah, just recently, this past week, I've been thinking about <clears throat> Paul's thorn in the side, um, and I'm convinced that the thorn in the side. And, and what Paul hears is he's prayed, he prays, it never goes away, and my grace is sufficient for you. And I have learned over the years that the thorn in the side is my great teacher. And I don't know why it's I don't know why it's set up that way. I don't know why we have to endure it that way. Um, but we do cycle back around and around and around. We get wiser for those of us who are open and make ourselves available to grace, we do get wiser, but but some things are just with us. They're just mm. part of us, and we I will take it forever. So beautiful and so true. And the other thing that happens for me is I also get more tender. Yes, I yes. I don't get wiser, I've gotten more tender, and so I have a lot of yep. different feelings in that place where the thorn's been for so long is a tender spot. <laughs> I hear you, I right, get it. Right. You know, and I think I, I recognize that spot on my children. You know, I've, yes. as, I've, as I've raised my children, and I imagine someday if I'm blessed with grandchildren, it's like I'll recognize it that um, they bring up that tender spot again. It's it's all so sweet, too. And anyway, I just yep. I love that imagery of, of that being a teacher. Yeah. And... Just recently, I had the experience of, um, you know, helping somebody that was just coming to terms with their own sexual assault and trauma. And I thought, you know, I've heard somewhat, some version of the story a thousand times. So how is it that I don't get tired of it? Or how does it that I can really engage? And it is because it's still tender. Like I can still go like, whew. 
Yeah. I can recognize that tenderness in someone else too. And if they're telling a story that's 40 years old. Right. Yeah. I think that's like one of my, my questions for you is, you know, you deal in a lot of joy and healing, but you also have to deal in a ton of, you know, sadness and these stories of these women. And I wonder like, what is the effect that that has on your faith in God? Because I, I find that those are always the times when I hear these stories of people's hurt, especially over and over again, that's when I start to doubt the most, you know, and, and doubt what I think about God and if God is as good as I think he is. And you know what I'm saying? And so I wonder as somebody who's dealing with trauma all the time and hearing these similar stories all the time, uh, how do you stay grounded in your faith? So the biggest gift of my life since I was a child is that God has not been my issue. I've had a ton of different issues. Um, I doubt a lot of stuff. And for some reason, like you would think, especially because the very first place I was assaulted was in the fellowship hall of the church. Mm, Yeah, exactly. That would be all wrapped up in God. And it's like, I was raised. God is love. I was raised by a mom that understood what that meant, meaning that love walks through all of it with us and and holds us and comforts us and does all that. I mean, there's all kinds of issues in this world when you're hearing the brokenness. I, I don't know how that was never part of my story or I never questioned being ordained or being in the church. I just wanted to be a part of a loving, healing community. And I knew I know how bad church can be. I know how bad church can be and how dysfunctional and how silencing all of that. But again, I never got that confused with God. Mm. And, um, I don't again, I have no idea why that is, but I'm so grateful that when I hear a story of pain when I hear a story of injustice, when I hear a story of oppression, um, I don't go to God allows or God doesn't allow. I go to what's 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 love got to do? <laughs> you we know, know, seriously, I feel that way. And it's like, I hope that you, I mean, if there's ever, if there's one thing you can take from this about kind of figuring out what love looks like, in the trauma and in the brokenness, that's what I hope people can maybe contemplate from this. You know, it's funny. I have a similar, my history is different, of course, but a similar um, experience about God. I've never doubted God's existence. (laughs) You know, I've always had, I've always known. I've always, even as a child, I, I always had it if you will, had that. There were a lot of things I didn't have, a lot of things I didn't know, a lot of things I had to learn, a lot of questions I had to answer, but that you could no more, I've said this in another podcast earlier, you could no more talk me out of there is God than you could try to convince me the moon is made of green cheese. God is (laughs) just God is. Well, that would be yellow cheese anyway. That would be yeah, okay. Good. <laughs> no, but I agree with you. And also, I want to say that as a pastor of thirty years, I believe a lot less than I started out believing. I say the same thing. I say I've I know, as the older I've gotten, 
I know less and less about most things and more and more about a few things. That's exactly how, I mean, seriously, yep. we're on the same page on that. And I think yep. the is beautiful because it is like you have to give up some of these ideals about God in the face of trauma and injustice. It's like it's this does not work anymore. But what I'm left believing, I will um, die for. Yep, mm. yep, yep. I probably will die for it. Well, I, I mean, I'll die believing it or working towards it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I said to um, somebody not too long ago, they were, I can't remember, it was really something about some piece of dogma. And I just was trying to be really open to hearing what they had to say. But I didn't believe any of it to begin with. I was like, I Wait, we're struggling with what on this issue? Okay. Uh huh. You know, and it was a very big deal in their faith, but it was a very young faith. Yeah. Oh, I so get what you're talking about. Oh I God, so get what about the ark? What are we worrying about on the ark again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> um, just a technical question. You, um, your whole being your whole methodology is crystal clear in what you bring to thistle farms how is religion dealt with at thistle farms in any explicit way or is it implicit or is it just love and community how would is it talked about what how would you answer that um so we are a community that feels very comfortable in the language of love um, we're a community mm -hmm. that feels pretty comfortable in the language of recovery. And yeah. um, that is the foundation of what our language is about, you know, that it is a spiritual journey of love. It is a journey that is practiced. It's grounded in the basic principles of all faiths. We are not a faith-based community, I think, especially because religion has been used to so much detriment to some of the women you know, we have, yes, a, you know yes. right, we have a woman here currently who was raised in a cult, which was just a cover story for child brides and incest. Yeah. Yep. So we really are not a religious faith-based organization. We women are on their own journey and I'll talk to anybody about anything. We, um, I don't have Bible studies. <laughs> I don't have <laughs> um, offerings. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. offerings? No. <laughs> um, no, but I just think it's like for me, you know, there are a lot of women who think I'm not near Christian enough who come through this. I mean, they have the experience of Jesus pick them up and save them from the streets or they had the still small voice while they were sitting in a prison cell. And, you know, they want the full on experience of what that Christianity and their faith means to them. And I do not measure up to that in many ways. There are other women that have um, talk about higher power. They're very suspicious of me being ordained and Christian anyway. You know, yeah. so it runs the gambit. And so I try just to be true to what I believe without um, worrying about if I measure up to anybody else's standard of that. And I'm happy for anybody to be anywhere they are on that journey. Is your denomination supportive of you actively? 
there are um, several um, Episcopal churches around the country who have been very, very supportive and who that have opened sister communities from, you know, going to speak at their church, then a group gets involved and all that's been great, but no, um, nothing formal from our, my diocese or the national church. Right. Hmm. Well, uh, this has been a fabulous conversation. And, um, like I said earlier, I'm so glad for the reunion and I look forward to more connection in the days ahead. I hope, I really do hope that. I hope that I do too. our communities stay connected, but also that you and I get to stay connected. Yeah. And I don't know if we've told you about our, what we're trying to do in Washington Heights with, we're in the very beginning stages of um, working with the community. We're beginning with mothers with children zero to three years of age, but already that's expanding out in other necessities, let's put it that way. Um, we can talk about that more later, but I, but what you are offering and what your experience is, is very helpful, I think, to our community to learn what the opportunity is to make a difference uh, within a community. Wow, I so, can't wait to hear more about it. I really am help, I'm yeah. happy to help in any way that I can. And I hope everybody keeps staying safe. It, you know, the pandemic is long and it's somewhat relentless, but I know that a pandemic is no time to quit. No. Remembering nope. the power of love and the power of community. So I commend y'all, commend your listeners and, you know, really just love, love, love. Yep. Thank yes. you so much, Becca. Yeah. Thanks a lot. More to come. Be well. Be well. <laughs>